0: This is the Sound School podcast. I'm Rob Rosenthal, the producer of Sound School with the backstory to great audio storytelling. This podcast is a collaboration between PRX and Transom.org. Because of the insane explosion in podcasting, so many shows, there's a staffing shortage. Editors are in high demand and there aren't enough to go around. To help fill the void, Companies like Neon Hum and Air, the nonprofit association of independence and radio, they offer training for people who wish to become editors. But despite their valiant efforts, I'm not sure they're filling the void. Besides, what exactly does an editor do? Well, it depends. It depends on the story, depends on the team, but in large part, an editor will tackle aspects of audio storytelling, like the story arc. How does the story unfold, not only over the course of several episodes, if it's a serialized podcast, but within episodes, too? What happens first? What happens second? How's it end? Will that ending prompt listeners to press play on the next episode? An editor also edits a script. They comb through line by line, checking structure, language, pacing, handoffs to quotes, inconsistencies, missing context. They might do a little fact checking, listen to audio mixes and make suggestions for scoring. I mean, that's not a complete list, but it's a lot, right? There's one other aspect of the job, coaching. Collaborating in such a way that the reporter feels like they're supported, not making their way through the black forest alone. And sometimes that means being a kind of therapist. Where an editor pushes a producer to dig deeper, especially in a first person story where the reporter is telling a story about themselves. Well, to shine a light on this aspect of editing, I excavated an episode from the archive, an episode of Sound School from 2014, when this podcast was called How Sound. The show focuses on the relationship Vicki Merrick had as an editor with the producer Will Coley. Vicky is a colleague here at Transom.org and Atlantic Public Media. Will is a former student of mine at the Transom Story Workshop. And Will and Vicky worked together, along with Jay Allison, who also edited, on Will's documentary, Southern Flight 242, Bringing My Father Home. Will was very reluctant to muck around in his feelings to fully tell the story, to bring his father home, as the title suggests. It was Vicky's job as editor-slash-coach to help Will wade through the emotional ditch, as she describes it. And there definitely was a ditch to wade through. From here, I'll let the archive episode of How Sound take the reins. Will's story starts a few decades ago, in 1977. Southern Airways Flight 242 was on its way home from Alabama to Georgia when it flew into a severe thunderstorm. <laughs> A windshield broke in the cockpit, and the plane lost altitude. No
1: left engine, just shut out. The
0: left engine failed, then the right. Oh, wow. we
1: lost both engines.
0: The pilots landed the plane on a highway in New Hope, Georgia, but it was more like a crash than a landing. Twenty-one people survived. Over 60 died, including Will Coley's dad. Will was seven years old at the time of the crash. He says he spent much of his life skirting big questions related to his father's death. Questions like, what exactly happened that day? Who was my dad? And what does it meant to lose a father at such a young age? I might've been, I don't know if it was elementary school or junior
2: high, I wrote about, I remember I wrote a little essay about the day that I found out my father had
0: died. But beyond that, no, I hadn't really looked into it. As he explains in his documentary, it wasn't until 2012, some 35 years after the crash, that Will took the plunge to look for answers. Whenever the subject of my father comes
2: up, I only mention the accident in passing. Somehow, I offer it up at arm's length, like a by the way. I reveal some of the facts of the crash and study the listener's response. I wince when they say, Oh, I'm so sorry. But last year, I decided to dig deeper. See, I found a cassette tape. I was cleaning out my grandmother's house after she passed away. One of the cassettes I found had only a few seconds of audio on it.
1: And then you record, and like you're writing a
2: My father is showing me how to record.
1: Will, you want to say something to record it? <laughs>
3: no.
1: You don't want to say anything? How many rabbits you got? I've rabbits. I've no. You don't want to tell about the rabbits? Okay, let's see what it sounds I don't have any idea what it's going to sound like. So then you have
0: to stop. So not long after listening to the cassette tape, Will was in Atlanta, Georgia for a conference. He was about 80 miles from the crash site, and he thought to himself, well, here's an opportunity. It was sort of like, you know, just something that just
2: had to be done, you know, and it was going to happen at some point, so, you know, better get cracking on it, you
0: know. Will made contact with people connected to the crash and started interviewing witnesses in New Hope. But despite his personal stake in the story, Will said he still approached interviews at a distance, at arm's length. I pulled into the parking lot of Rodney's Barbecue
2: to meet up with Eric Creighton. He had been 14 years old when the plane crashed into his neighborhood. He invited me into his truck since it was so hot outside.
4: Things I wanted to do, and we can do it in any order you want, was I wanted to drive up the road here and kind of bring
2: you down the flat path. Yeah, if okay. you don't mind. I was here. Uh, is it hard to think about it? Uh, not at this point, no. It's been enough years. Uh, right in here somewhere is probably where the wheels touch the ground first. It, I, there were moments when I realized I was kind of acting like a reporter. Holes. You know, like when I was actually at the crash site walking through the, the site with this guy who was there the day it happened and him describing it to me and I sort of felt like, behind. you know, I suddenly yeah, kind of took this out. very objective sort of like journalistic okay. kind of like, oh, and then what happened kind of thing. What I could see when I... Let's step over in the shade. <laughs> what I could see when I looked out the front window
4: is flames 50 feet high
1: as far as I could see that way, and as far as I could see that way.
2: And a lot of the wreckage was directly in front of that brick house.
0: Will says he remained at a safe emotional distance, even as he interviewed a flight attendant, a passenger who survived, a cousin, and his mom. In fact, in the documentary, Will chats with his mom about the day his father died, and it all sounds fairly matter-of-fact, as though it's not his story. Do you want to talk about what happened on April 4th? or?
4: So... Um, the weather was terrible. It was just black. The sky was black. So um, about 4 o'clock this, that afternoon, Will and Meredith were watching cartoons. And you can,
2: I, you don't have to say Will. You can say me because oh, yeah, I'm sitting okay.
4: here. And I walked walk through the den and there was a flash on the TV that this horrible crash had occurred.
0: Federal investigators said today they believe the pilot of the southern plane was trying to land the aircraft when the crash occurred. Preliminary review of the wreckage. And I remember somebody blast. came
4: to the door. I don't even remember who it was. But when I looked at her, for some reason, I just knew that Gordon was lost on the plane.
2: And they knew that quickly. I mean, it was like, hmm.
4: No, I knew my in my spirit.
2: Oh. Hmm.
4: Then people from our church started coming
2: to the house. Yeah, I remember everybody coming over with food and casseroles and stuff. And I didn't like the way they looked at me. You know, like they pit—they were looking... They were so... I don't know. You know?
4: They were so sad. Mm. Because they knew Gordon. He was the type of person who... You just never imagined this happening to. He was very beloved by everybody who ever met him. And... um The way I have now made sense of it, after all these years, is the Bible says there's a time to be born and a time to die. And I think that was Gordon's time.
2: And this is the part of the story I don't tell, not even to my mother. I hid in my room. I hunkered down in front of my bed. All I understood was that my father was not coming home, And all those people in the living room had been watching me, searching my face for signs of how I felt. Problem was, I didn't know what I felt. Then I made an oath. No one would know that I was the kid without a father. It was a ridiculous, illogical oath. But I was seven years old, and actually I've kept that oath pretty well to myself.
0: I haven't really dug into how I felt about it. After Will finished his interviews... He had the tape transcribed. Now make note of that. He didn't do the transcribing. Someone else did. Will never really immersed himself in the tape. We'll come back to that idea shortly. He pitched the story to Transom.org, a website dedicated to the craft of storytelling. Reaching out to Transom made a lot of sense. Will was a student at the Transom Story Workshop, where I teach, so he already had a connection there. And Transom often works with producers on first-person stories. Well, they accepted his pitch, and Will started working with editor Vicky Merrick. Not too long into the process, Vicky noticed Will's detachment from the story.
3: When it's your father you're talking about, you don't just go back and retell the accident. That there would be implied in his pitch that there would be an emotional ditch to be dug <laughs> and dragged through, you know. What do you think that ditch was? Hmm. I think I I think I think know what the ditch was supposed to be, and that was hurt, hurting, and sorrow, and crying, and feeling lost again after all those years. And then after feeling all of that, then go back down into the ditch and get a little bloodier.
0: Frankly, Will's aversion to getting in the ditch makes a lot of sense. It's risky, painful how many of us really have the courage to face what's inside us? But the story needed narration that revealed Will from the inside. Will, metaphorically speaking, needed to bring his father home. Both Vicky and Will say they spent weeks going back and forth and back and forth over Will's scripts. Vicky looking for Will to climb down into the ditch and Will safely remaining up at ground level.
2: I mean, she she was kind of a, you know, she was coaching me through all this. She was talking to me about it and she was saying, you know kind of prodding me to do other things.
3: I had been saying, okay, I got that. I got that. I got the story. Now you need to make me care more.
2: What are you feeling about it? What do you, what does this mean for you? Why Why aren't you more worked up about this? Okay, well, here's another script. Here's me rewriting the narration. What do you think of this?
3: And so he kept sending scripts with all of the retelling from the stewardess and... Uh, everybody else's point of view except for his own and any kind of introspection is going to tell him yeah you gotta you gotta dress this you gotta go in there go in that room where that little boy is but he didn't want to, and the idea that he was moving everything around on paper it was 22 pages of paper
0: Vicki thinks of herself as a shepherd. She's very experienced at helping writers and producers through tough emotional territory, and she's good at it. For years, she edited essays for the radio series This I Believe, along with Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media. The essays were typically first-person stories by people from all walks of life.
3: That was a very intense experience and probably some of my favorite work because, you know, people would write to you with their deepest feeling about something, maybe that they had never really talked about.
0: Public radio listeners submitted essays to this, I believe, for consideration. And if an essay stood out, Vicki and Jay would decide whether to pursue the story. Vicki would contact the essayist. She'd chat with them, test them, really, to see if they were willing to get honest and real very quickly, because these were short pieces on a short deadline. If the writer did, they'd move forward, editing and getting in the ditch
3: and say, you know, this is a really important story. The priest turned away from you, your family turned away from you, you were pregnant, you know, whatever, and you found sanctuary in the forest? How did that, what does that look like? Did you fall down in front of a tree and, like, sob? What, you know, how did that all come? And, And that happened, like, over the course of five days, five conversations. You know, it was fast. It was very fast because all of these essays were five minutes long and... You know, we, had, we were juggling six and eight essays at a time sometimes, but it was remarkable. I mean, the therapeutic aspect of it was incomparable.
0: But Will did not move quickly. And despite her best efforts, Vicky couldn't get Will off the dime. And she was frustrated. So she wrote an email to Jay, who was also an editor on Will's story. The email was an honest assessment
3: about the lack of progress. Problem was... Vicky accidentally copied Will. I have to say that was the most horrifying moment. I mean, still, all in my family, all you have to do is mention the email and everybody because everybody was home and they heard me screaming. I'm still mortified by
2: it. I was in Italy and I checked my phone and there was an email that Vicky had accidentally sent to me that she had attended for Jay. And basically what she was saying was is like I don't
3: think he's going to be able to do it.
2: He's working with the script, but why can't he just make it?
3: I don't think he's going to go there emotionally. Why can't he put it together? <laughs> he tries and he wants to, but I don't think he had the the emotional momentum to dive in. So I was like, oh
2: yeah? Well, I'll show you.
3: <laughs> so I wrote to him and I just said I was so sorry, you know, and he kind of was very... Um, easy going about it. And he said, don't worry, I'll make the piece when I come home. That's all he said.
2: When I got back to the States, I really got in there and started putting it together. And that's when I listened to stuff. And I was like, oh, yeah, now I see why this doesn't work on paper. I see why this is different, you know, and somehow hearing all that, you know, really made a difference. And at the same time, I also had this these cassettes of my father's voice, which I carried around and never really listened to. I just didn't I don't know. I just didn't want to, you know, And then when I finally sat down and listened to them and really started thinking about how they connected to the story I just looked at or had been looking into, that's when everything kind of started changing and shifting and it really made a big difference.
3: And so then he and I had a few more conversations and he started to sound and feel more real. And I would get emails from him today like, I just have no energy. I can't, you know, so he was he was going in there, which I think changed everything in that piece. Otherwise, it just would have been, this is what happened. And instead, he really did get to bring his father back, or bring him home, anyway, where he belonged, instead of out there at triple arm's length.
2: I ask everyone I met a similar question. What did they think of me doing this project 35 years after the crash? Sandy, the former flight attendant, told me why she thought it was important.
4: I think it's a natural process to want to know where your father went to meet people that are connected with the days of his life. I think it's very natural to want to touch the ground where he fell. I would want to know.
3: Mm.
4: You weren't there. You were a child. You're bringing your father home. You're bringing your father home. He was brought home to you. You get to go back and bring him home.
2: I have brought my father home. All during my trip, I carried around those surviving audio cassettes with my father's voice on them. But only recently have I listened to them all. Something in his voice gives me a sense of what kind of father he was. Uh,
1: Mother and Dad, I thought I'd uh, try recording a letter since I've been so poor lately about... uh writing any letters. I thought this would be a good chance to try this out while I'm driving along.
2: Based the on the date written there. on the tape, it was more than five uh, months before the start. crash. Uh,
1: Will uh, and Meredith really enjoyed Halloween this year. Will said it's the best Halloween it ever had. We went out Saturday morning and brought bought us a pumpkin, and uh, then Will drew a face on it and carved it. The, uh, I, I sort of helped him, but he carved it the way he wanted it.
2: I've always been told that my father was into Halloween, but hearing him directly talk about it with such attention really got me. Because I'm into Halloween. I mean really into it. Even now, I can't imagine not celebrating it each year. I must have gotten it from him. My mother tells the story of how he took me trick-or-treating when I was only three weeks old. They dressed me like a sailor and wheeled me in a pram around for the neighbors to see. She tells the story to illustrate the kind of father he was. Now I can hear some of this from him.
1: On the other side of this tape is uh, a recording that Will made uh, Saturday for Halloween. Uh, I didn't help him any with it. I just told him how to operate the uh, tape player, and he took it back to his room and made all the scary sounds uh, so we could uh, play it out the window when the trick-or-treaters came uh, for Halloween Saturday night. And that's all for now.
2: My father taught me to make Halloween my own. I could be anything I wanted and he would help me make my costume then he takes me out for the neighbors to see me at each new house I climb the front steps and boldly ring the doorbell no matter what happens no matter the uncertainty or fear I feel I take comfort in the fact that my father is standing out on the sidewalk just outside the circle of the porch light I know he's there watching proudly watching me, maybe even marveling at me. I guess that is what I lost. I couldn't face that fact since the crash. I didn't just hide from the grownups in our living room for fear of what they might think. I also hid from myself, from the chasm of confusion opening up inside me. I hid from a future without him. It wasn't pity in the eyes of those families in our living room. The grownups were confused too They knew just as much as I did at seven years old. I wish they'd said to me, Will, there's no reason to hide. We don't understand either. It helps just to imagine those words. I've stopped hiding. I'm not afraid of this story anymore. Now it's a story I can tell about who my father was and who I am because of him.
0: That's producer Will Coley from Southern Flight 242, Bringing My Father Home. Will produced it with Jay Allison, who edited and mixed the program, and Vicki Merrick, who edited and shepherded. Transom published Southern Flight in January of 2014. You can listen to the entire story and read Will's lessons learned at transom.org. And in hindsight, he's come to understand the benefit of transcribing, and more importantly, the value of pushing through internal resistance. I have a very, uh, vocal internal
2: editor who wants to tell me that, you know, tons of reasons why things aren't good and why they're not, you know, why you're either a fraud or I don't know, you know, all the stuff that you tell yourself to stop yourself from doing things. And I think, you know, in some ways it's sort of like just to keep, keep at it and, and recognize what you're feeling and document it, you know, either, Uh, be writing about it or recording yourself talking about it or just being aware of yourself and what you're dealing with and kind kind of pushing through all those excuses for why not to do
3: it. I learned that it's not... that maybe it's a service to sometimes... I guess people would call it tough love or something, but that it's a service to somebody, especially that's struggling... And you don't have a lot of time. It's not like we're in therapy for years and and months and stuff. But um, it makes me wonder if I would be a little more focused in a pointed kind of way. I don't know because it's sort of go. It's contrary to my shepherdess kind of devotion to helping people tell the story to be mean you know to turn around and be mean and say what you can't do it can you go there you're gonna go there you're gonna pussyfoot around I don't know if I, I, I don't know if I could do it on purpose but well that turned out well though didn't it? I mean, it was, you know
0: we've been listening to an archive episode of the sound school podcast from 2014, when the show was called How Sound. Vicki Merrick still edits, she also does a lot of voice coaching, and Will Coley is still a producer. He's currently working for the New Yorker Radio Hour. Speaking of Vicki and her voice coaching, she's the narration whisperer, I swear. There's an old episode of How Sound called Sounding Like Yourself, and Vicki lays out all of her tricks to help producers bring their authentic selves to the mic. Sounding like yourself, find it at transom.org. This is the Sound School podcast from PRX and Transom. It's edited by Genevieve Sponsler at PRX and Jay Allison at Transom. I record my narration at WCAI in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Thank you all. And thank you for listening. I'm Rob Rosenthal. and transom.org.